I came into Hope Lab about five years ago, and a big part of my mission was to try to build on this really incredible legacy that Hope Lab had as a, a research lab really committed to co-creation with young people. So young people were and are engaged in every step of the way. Welcome to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we celebrate the entrepreneurs and innovators building the future of health. I'm Logan Plaster. This week on the show, we're bringing you a conversation between Stephen Krein, the CEO and co-founder of Startup Health, and Margaret Laws, the president and CEO of Hope Lab, a social innovation lab working to improve the health and well-being of young people. The two CEOs met up for a fireside chat recently to discuss moonshot thinking and global collaboration and talk about how Help Lab works with teens using human-centered design techniques to develop and test health tech that will really move the needle for the next generation. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to make sure you never miss an inspiring episode about health innovators, be sure to follow Startup Health Now wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on to the conversation between Stephen Krein and Margaret Laws. I really wanted to start on the personal side of things and really take a step back and ask you a little bit about how your family, in particular your father's career as a renowned neurosurgeon who's still actively practicing and operating today uh, at, I think, almost 83, and your mother's education as a nurse, and how that impacted your career ambition. Sure. Well, it's interesting because I certainly ended up, I think, in a in a part of healthcare and working in healthcare that that's pretty distant from practicing neurosurgery or from teaching nursing. But I think there, there's a couple of things that I that I would highlight, and one of them is that I I really grew up surrounded by people who were deeply committed to the care part of healthcare. And and you know when you think about neurosurgery, it's technological. It's it's very um, intense, but I think the memories that I have as a kid of being in my family and talking with my parents about their work, um, I, I will always remember them uh, talking about and using the term taking care of people. And that's really what this sort of life of care and service, I think, was a big piece of it. And the other part of it was that um, I grew up in Rochester, Minnesota. My father was at the Mayo Clinic um, and the Mayo Clinic, you know, it still is, but then was this very iconic place and was was doing healthcare very differently. Um, and I think there was a huge amount of pride um, in the way healthcare was delivered there, um, and in the way that the organization served not just as sort of a the forefront of cutting edge science, but also served the community. Um, so I think I just you know I I definitely grew up um, surrounded by. Um, by healthcare and by the notion um, of trying to be innovative and do healthcare very well. Um, and, 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 and so was it a conversation even as young, when you were a child, or is it something that kind of came into play as you were um, graduating, you know, high school, college and getting into starting your career? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I'm one of four daughters. We're all born very closely in age. And the only one of us who went into medicine was my older sister who became a horse vet. She's an equine surgeon. And so, you know, I went off to college and found that I had much more of an aptitude for English and language and literature. I was an English major at Princeton than I did. And in fact, I remember, um, you know, thinking that I would take physics and I didn't take the easy physics. I took the harder physics and I, I probably almost failed. Um, and, and I don't think that was so much the thing that set me back, but it really got me realizing that my direction was probably not going to be to go to medical school. Um, and I ended up graduating from college and my first job was, was actually in state government. I was working for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and I was a caseworker, a social worker with homeless families. And it, I felt like it was a little bit of an urban peace corps. I had spent the summer before my senior year in college in Africa teaching um, and and just got had I think gotten much more awakened to um, social justice, social causes, service, and I think had a, a really fascinating first career experience um, working with homeless families and really trying to help navigate as a very young you know not that worldly person myself, trying to navigate the complexity of the health and social service system um, for people who are from, you know, really under-resourced and under-invested communities. So 
I think it was a very interesting place to start. And from then I went off into a series of, of other um, positions in healthcare and social services. I spent some time at the World Health Organization in the early days of the global program on AIDS. Um, I spent time working in management consulting. I spent time at a couple nonprofits. And the other thing I think that characterized my journey and certainly characterizes where I am today is that I really was fascinated by working in and across very different sectors. I was in the private sector, the nonprofit sector, the public sector. And I realized, I think, that I had an aptitude for being both interested in and intensely curious about the way each of those different systems worked and then in translating between and among them and really in some ways trying to bring the best of um, or the things I learned from each of them to the other to create collaborations and hopefully really to try to innovate. And, and has that kind of really shaped the mission that you set out when you joined Hope Lab and what you're doing at Hope Lab today? And maybe you could describe a little about exactly what Hope Lab does and um, how in particular what you just described as multidisciplinary different stakeholders collaborating together. Sure. Well, I'll back up a little bit because I think it was an interesting uh, a similarity at California Healthcare Foundation. Um, and the notion there was that we really, uh, I was running a program called Innovations for the Underserved, which I, I started there in about 2006. And what we were trying to do there was really, I describe it as bring innovations in healthcare service and technology. So really stay abreast of what real innovation was happening out there and try to bring that into underserved or underinvested communities to Medicaid and what we call the safety net. And so that challenge of understanding what was going on, you know, in the venture world, in investment, uh, in healthcare technology, to also really deeply understand what was happening in community health centers and in safety net hospitals, and then to try to create a program that brought those things together, that, that did the translation and the collaboration to bring, to, to really try to help bring the innovation to the populations who are probably the least likely to get it if we just follow the traditional venture trajectory, but who need it arguably more than, than anyone. Um, so before I left CHCF, the other thing I did, and this is probably about the time we met, was I, along with Mark Smith, our CEO at the time, started a social venture fund, the CHCF Health Innovation Fund. And the idea was that we would invest in private sector companies, almost all for profits and one occasional nonprofit, um, and have come in as a strategic investor with our strategic investment um, expertise really being in how to bring that company, that product or service into Medicaid or into other low-income populations. And so we did companies like Omada and Propeller and iRhythm and a lot of really interesting uh, tech companies bringing the expertise around community health centers, public hospitals, the Medicaid system um, to this constellation of investors and entrepreneurs who, who all really did want to serve um, a diverse population and want to really try to impact people who had significant uh, challenges um, but could benefit from the expertise we could bring. So flash forward to Hope Lab, as you noted, we're a social innovation lab founded and funded by the Omidyars, the founders of eBay. And Hope Lab has, has always been focused on using technology to improve the health and well-being of young people. You know, Hope Lab's first first iteration, first, um, first sort of came to life to build a video game for kids with cancer. And it was at a time when video games were still pretty new and played on uh, desktops, <laughs> largely. Um, but Pam Omidyar really had the insight that there might be a way to use something about uh, video game interaction to try to help young people who are not taking all their chemo drugs or antibiotics to actually have a better adherence with their regimen and, and have better outcomes. Um, and it's a, a long story, but um, Hope, Lab, uh, Hope Lab at the time developed a product called Remission, went through randomized controlled trials um, and demonstrated not just that using this, this digital therapeutic, this intervention, which I would argue would be one of the first digital therapeutics, that young people were more likely to comply, to take their antibiotics, to take their chemo meds and have better outcomes. Um, and the big challenge was then getting that to market. Um, and that product was given away um, and got out to thousands of kids around the world. 
um, and is still, you know, got a, a community of followers that that is very attached to it, who are now in their, many of them, you know, in their 30s, who were young people at the time who benefited from it. Um, and I came into Hope Lab about five years ago, and a big part of my mission was to try to build on this really incredible legacy that Hope Lab had as a a research lab really committed to co-creation with young people. So young people were and are engaged in every step of the way from defining the problem to coming up with the idea for the intervention to building the prototype to testing it. So big, big history there to build on. And then really to try to put together the, the power of bringing together research. Most of the researchers are psychologist, cognitive or um, clinical. We've had neuroscientists in the mix, along with designers, uh, human-centered design experts from IDEO and similar places, and then product managers or product developers. Um, and to really try to bring together what we think is the magic of design, co-creating with young people, with the rigor of um, understanding the science behind, um, behind motivation, behind psychology, behind behavior change. So the team we have at Hope Lab now is this interdisciplinary team that brings together these different uh, areas of expertise. And our team also always includes co-creating young people. Um, mm -hmm. So right now, just to give you an example of some of the things we have worked on recently or are working on, we have uh, interventions or tools, apps, bots, um, one for teen moms, uh, one focusing on social connection, loneliness and social connection, kind of as precursors to and predictors of anxiety and depression in college students. We've done work with teens and young adults recovering from cancer treatment. We have work with uh, LGBTQ plus young people on anxiety, depression, and kind of uh, identity affirmation. We've got some work right now on vaping cessation. So a, a diverse range of topics, but all things where we feel like um, some sort of a behavior change or positive uh, uh, intervention around uh, psychology and neuroscience can help lead to improved health outcomes and largely mental and emotional health outcomes for young people. So, so I mean, these programs are incredible and what you just described sounds like an entrepreneur's dream, right? The opportunity to have a third party, uh, a collaborator, do some validation, do some uh, really partnership on bringing products to market with data to support everything is what's the chicken and egg here are you are you leading and going out to say to entrepreneurs and innovators this is what we're trying to do who can we work with are they coming to you can you give us a little bit of the entrepreneurial journey and interaction on how you interface with that you know the the entrepreneurial ecosystem and startup ecosystem yeah great it's a great question um so a few different ways, and, and what I will say is, and we can talk about this a little bit more later, one of the things we did this year was launched a investment practice, much like what I described at CHCF. So we now are investing in companies, and I'm excited. I can't say which one it is, but I'm excited to say we've made our first investment. We just started this summer, and we've made our first investment. We're about to announce our second, probably in the next week or so. In and it is a startup health company. I'll say that. Love that. Excited. Um, exciting. Exciting. Yes. Uh, in the space of mental health and well-being. Yeah. Um, and what we're focusing on in that impact investment practice is is on a few different things. One is where do we think there are companies that can really accelerate. Um, the improvements in mental health access, uh, mental and emotional health and well-being access for young people. Um, where can we support uh, underrepresented founders and founders who are working with communities that have been underinvested in? So BIPOC communities, LGBTQ plus communities. So we do have, in addition to the big social mission of helping to improve mental and emotional well-being of young people, um, we're also trying to, through the investments we make, um, support uh, support entrepreneurs who are really um, coming from and bringing with them um, the needs of, of communities that have had less investment. So different ways entrepreneurs get involved with us. We have, for the first time this past year, we've also, we've had two entrepreneurial fellows and one entrepreneur in residence, all doing really interesting work. So we've partnered with Headstream Innovation Incubator that works on teen, young adult mental well-being, And we've had an entrepreneurial fellow who's actually come in and literally virtually in this past year, sat with us and worked with our teams, 
teaching our teams and learning from our teams. Um, really impactful. Uh, we had an entrepreneur in residence this past year, Rob Morris, who launched a re is relaunching a really fascinating um, innovation uh, company called Coco. That's basically an uh, AI algorithm that sits on social networks that uses artificial intelligence and machine learning to detect distress and to root people to help either through peer support or crisis lines. So a really interesting bringing together of very advanced technology and real empathy and, and human connection. Um, and so what we do is as we're developing the prototypes for the things we're working on, we will partner with companies or organizations. So not necessarily entrepreneurs, but a, a company that might be um, that might be launching something. So we've got a, a company called Grit Digital Health in Denver that we work with that mm -hmm. has a platform for college students and our co-developed app Nod, teaching social connection skills and, and improving depression and anxiety among college students was co-created and, and co-developed with, with GRIT. Um, we developed something for high-risk young moms with Nurse Family Partnership, an amazing nonprofit organization that serves that population. But now through the investment program, we are able to invest in entrepreneurs and work alongside them. So the brand new, just launched six months ago, but our aspiration there, um, we've already started it with the first company, Equip, uh, which works with um, uh, people with eating disorders and does does virtual digital work. Um, we'll make an investment, a financial investment, an impact investment in the company. And then we will do some work uh, supporting that company in areas that Hope Lab has expertise and the company can benefit. So that might be development of the impact pathway. How are we gonna show that this has the impact that it's intending to reduce anxiety, reduce depression, decrease the, um, uh, the prevalence of eating disorders or recurrence of eating disorder. Um, we might do user experience work. So how might we help a company that is working with young people and wants to develop uh, a special module or some way of um, bringing on LGBTQ plus young people, BIPOC young people to uh, work with a team of young people as co-designers to help design a module, a user experience. Um, we might do uh, advising on uh, some sort of complexities that I talked about earlier of how does this company um, that is working in schools and with Medicaid bring together the logistics of working with school districts with working with the Medicaid system? How might we make progress in pushing for Medicaid reimbursement for services that happen in schools? So really it could be in any of those areas, user experience, impact validation, or, or really trying to think about how financing happens for young people where Medicaid's Please. funding. Yeah, so each of these programs sound like they take a little bit personal or custom, you know, angle on, you know, what unique abilities the organization will bring to the table for the specific situation or challenge they're working on. Do, do Is there a formula, uh, Margaret, for how Hope Lab interacts? In, you know, is it an investment size? There is, is there dollars and, and, and uh, resource allocation attributed to the investment? Like you just described, all these incredible resources that Hope Lab brings together? Well, that's a challenge. We're sort of trying to figure that out now. So as we make our first investments, um, it's been bespoke and I suspect it will continue to be. And, you know, we obviously are dealing like everyone with limited resources and to the extent that the, you know, we need the engagement of a team and there's only so much of that we can be doing, but we're making investments between a hundred and 500,000. So we're doing typically seed. We actually we're experimenting now with something that uh, we did at CHCF where we're coming in later at a series C stage with one company and helping that company um, which has been doing physical health with young people actually move into mental and behavioral health. So we're we're really, because we're not doing uh, too many of them, trying to be open and flexible and learn. Uh, we're yeah. an innovation lab, so I, I try to keep things innovative. Keep, remem keep remembering the, uh, the entrepreneurial spirit of all of this. I mean, I think it goes back to even, uh, you know, who's funding all of this, you know, the OMIDARs, uh, OMIDARs to, to really you know, I guess pinpoint what I think it seems like is inherent in their selection of, of you originally to be the president and CEO, but also 
in all the programs you initiated, which is around an entrepreneurial mindset and a collaborative mindset and really making sure it doesn't become just a traditional foundation or organization or nonprofit, right? So what, how much time do you spend curating both your team and your investments and your system partners for mindset? And is that kind of one of the filters that are important to you? It's a great, another great question because we think so much about mindset. You know, we're the, the science that our work is based in is psychology. And so we're, we're thinking a lot about mindset all the time. And I, we're in the middle of strategic planning right now, trying to learn from what we did over this past three years and take our step into the next version, just as you guys have done with startup health so many times, you know, hope lab version, whatever it is now, three or four. And entrepreneurial mindset and experimental mindset and innovation mindset is so important. And it's, you know, it, what it requires, I, I believe, is a real ability to not just tolerate, but, but sort of live through and be comfortable with ambiguity. And so for somebody who doesn't have that, it can be, it can be really challenging because there's, so, you know, we're in a space that is a really challenging space. There's a reason why teens and young adults or kids in general are not a big investment area in healthcare. They're not as expensive as older people. They don't have all the comorbid conditions yet, but there's so much that I believe needs to be done and can be done in this age, in this, in this time frame, in this age range that can help both people have much better lives, which we all want to do, um, but also help ameliorate a lot of pain and suffering down the road. And so I think, working with kids and young adults is one of those areas where having a, having a sort of a tolerance for ambiguity, curiosity, and willingness to take on hard problems, challenges that people haven't been able to solve is really, really important. It's a, it's a cornerstone of what we do because it's not the place where you're going to make the most money. It's not the place where you're going to, uh, you're going to have the easiest um, measurable results. A lot of what you're trying to do is prevent bad things from happening down the road. And in our healthcare system, that's a challenging thing to do and fund. So uh, we're both up against that as a challenge, but we also have what I think is an incredible asset and tailwind, which is we have the curiosity and the passion and the hope of young people um, as kind of the drivers of what we do. Um, and yeah. we try to keep that spirit alive as well. That was the spirit with which Pam really started Hope Lab. And that's an important spirit to keep alive in the work that we do. So having uh, three teenage daughters myself and thinking about the teens and young adults a lot in terms of the last 12 months and how COVID and the pandemic has impact, impacted their lives, my daughter losing her senior year in, in, uh, in high school and so many others kind of having really just a isolated you know, eight, 12, 15 months um, outside of what you typically do at that age. How, how has the last year in your mind made the challenge you just described that you're working on solving harder to solve? And uh, I'm going to start there and then I want to dive into a little bit about how 2021 and what your programming looks like is different as a result of that. No, terrific. So, I mean, sadly, the news Sadly, and I think in a good way, as a society, we have, I think, woken up to, and many of us, you just described your personal situation, have woken up to it because you, we can't escape it. It's in our own families, our own homes. You know, the rates of anxiety and depression among teens are really high. The CDC reported more than 60%, 63% of 18 to 24-year-olds reported symptoms of anxiety and depression. Um, about 25% reported increased substance use to deal with stress, and 25% said they seriously considered suicide. And, you know, for LGBTQ plus teens, for BIPOC teens, the numbers are higher. LGBTQ plus, we see um, a much higher percentage of suicidal ideation and suicide attempts. Um, and we also see this is a time in life, you know, which we've always known where mental illness begins to develop. So 50% of mental illness that we're going to see in a lifetime develops by age 14 and 75% by age 24. So it's been this really challenging and interesting year. And I think one of the things that we talk about a lot at Hope Lab is, you know, coming into COVID and coming into to 2020, 
we had the we, we were concerned as a society with the amount of time that kids were spending online or young people were spending online and in these digital worlds. But one of the things that was fascinating and one of the sort of paradoxes that COVID revealed is that left to their digital worlds where we were all afraid they were all holed up, they actually began to feel lonely. And so this, this sort of notion of the combination of using digital technology, but needing to form in-person social ties, um, so I think came to the fore and is just a fascinating area for, for further research. So something we're certainly delving into. Um, if you think about this time, it's a big time of identity development, identity formation, brain development. So there's a huge opportunity to support positive identity development and, and healthy habits that can really help bolster um, young people as they, as they move through the world. Um, and so it's a, it's a fascinating year to reflect on, to think about what we've experienced, what we've learned, in some ways, this hole that we have to dig out of, especially for young people from underinvested communities who really struggled with, you know, so much of what they get um, at school that was challenging to recreate at home. Young people living in families where people were losing jobs, where people were dying of COVID. I mean, really stark disparities. Um, so a, a hard 2020, but one that I think we can we we have to hope has brought some of these issues to the fore in a way that we as a society will invest a little bit more in them. Yeah. So one of the things I've noticed, and I'm sure you did as well, is that a lot of the technologies and solutions that were out there pre-COVID, um, you know, people trying to get people uh, others to understand how important or impactful these tools or solutions could be, finally had a moment where the the need for their tools and solutions that have existed for years are now relevant and needed on the, on the, on the front lines. How many of these programs that you're describing you're working on now and that you're seeing are just, you know, kind of adopt tools that are now getting adopted that have been around for a long time versus recreating the wheel and starting, you know, in 2021, looking forward and developing completely new tools. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's going to be some of each. So one thing, I mean, I don't need, this audience is pretty aware of the statistics of sort of seeing what happened with telehealth and digital health. So we saw, you know, what I've been working in telehealth for 20 years, more than that. And the adoption rate has been so slow. And this year, digital ways of doing health became a necessity. And that dovetails really well with the way young people want to engage in health. And so I think we saw you know, we saw a decade of progress in a very short time. Things that I think would have taken three to five years were happening, had to happen in a few months. And it's one of the things, you know, we talk about at Hope Lab, we're, we're, we're design, designer focused and design focused. And the, the beauty of constraints can sometimes uh, create real innovation. And I think the constraint of not being able to do a lot of things in person in health was just liberating for a lot of, of digital tools. So there's that sort of piece of it that's really about going digital that we've all been talking about since I met you and for 10 years before that. Yeah. There's another piece of it that's about mental and emotional health and well-being. And I think that a couple of things happened this year. One, you know, a lot of work on stigma reduction got a big boost by the fact that so many people were finding themselves challenged. Um, with mental um, mental health and mental well-being challenges or had somebody very close to them in their family challenge with it. And I think that did a lot to, to get us away from stigma. Um, and then I think the, so the, the things that were old but new again, definitely, you know, telehealth to be used for all sorts of ways of interacting around healthcare came to the fore. And now I think we're also in a really interesting space. And this is where I think the work that we're doing with young entrepreneurs and really trying to tap into the way young people, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, see the future is what's exciting. Because these are actually now some new things, new ways of existing and developing an identity online, new kinds of social networks that don't have some of the challenges that existing social networks have around the likes culture or privacy challenges. Um, so I think we're seeing both. I think one thing I will point to though, is we've been very deep in this work over the past year on the mental well-being of college students. 
And from an entrepreneurial sort of market perspective, the market for selling those products into colleges and universities has changed dramatically over the past year. The college presidents and administrators who would not have been engaged at this level of what kinds of tools can we bring onto campus to support our students' mental health, it's now really front and center. So I think there's societal sort of sea change, there's digital health being imperative and required. And then there's what I'm excited about, which is a new generation of digital natives taking on these challenges and becoming entrepreneurs themselves. And I hope bringing us things that are that really are new that we haven't seen before. Yeah, so how much do you think that, that all plays into what the next five years will look like as a result of the pandemic versus had the pandemic not occurred? In other words, what's now possible over the next five to 10 years that wouldn't have been possible but for the pandemic? Well, I mean, I think the th one of the things we haven't talked about about the pandemic yet, which has been huge broadly in society and, and, and with young people uh, really galvanizing has been the pandemic really re revealing in a way that I think was always there, but we hadn't wanted to look at the inequities in societies, racial inequities, income inequities. And, um, you know, you can't have a conversation like this without talking about what we've seen and what it's forced us to focus on as a society. So what I hope and I believe, and I've you know spent a lot of my career and spent a lot of my time working on thinking about social needs and social inequity is that, that this awareness and this focus on um, just how structurally unequal, just how big the structural inequities our system are and how that played out over COVID, I believe will change what happens over the next five years. Maybe not as much as I would hope it would, but I believe that the energy both in existing companies and among existing entrepreneurs to address social inequity as part of what they do is going to be something that that is going to be a legacy of this COVID time. Yeah. Um, I think there's another big legacy, we've talked about it, uh, around digital first and around uh, the implications that that has for moving care to where I think consumers and people have always wanted to have more of it at home and in the community. So I think there will be, we'll similarly see a move of care from an institution that you have to go to, to care coming to you in the community. And we're seeing lots of examples of companies, many of them startup health companies that are really um, taking that paradigm and making it real. Um, and that I think is fascinating because it's involving a, a really interesting combination of, you know, better, deeper, faster uses of technology with um, better ways of bringing the human touch in where it's needed to make these systems really work well. Um, COVID, great example of how we had the vaccine, an incredible, incredible accomplishment and yet a lot of what didn't work about our vaccine response was the human and systems part of it. The fact that we didn't have the underlying structures, public health structures and human structures to really get, to, to make the most of this incredible feat of engineering and of medicine and of science that the vaccine represented. Yeah, you know, um, we've for years used this uh, moonshot metaphor, the health moonshot metaphor of the moon landing being this single goal of landing an American on the moon and bringing them safely back. But it was 20,000 companies and 400,000 people collaborating to, to, to enable that to occur. And what you just described is really cooperation and collaboration to achieve something together that nobody would be able to achieve on their own. Um, how, how do you think about collaborative innovation, not only from the Hope Lab standpoint, but your own personal view and unique ability, which you described at the beginning around breaking down silos and seeing across disciplines and across stakeholders and how to bring it all together. Yeah, well, I do, and I do have, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold up my little- uh, my <laughs> I want one of those. <laughs> I'm gonna send you one, but this is something that sits on my desk and gets me thinking about- uh, Hold it up to the screen so everybody can see the whole, I don't know if it was, if it was cut off, I love it. The, Little moonshot guy, um, astronaut gal. Um, 
And I think I, I appreciate that that you you talk about it as moonshot thinking because I do feel like um, in the kinds of problems we're trying to solve now, which which are often not. I mean, getting the COVID vaccine out is arguably a moonshot problem, but in the kinds of problems that we're trying to solve right now around making mental health and well-being more accessible, more affordable, and more available to everybody, um, particularly to people in communities that have that have really suffered from underinvestment. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's not such a single tangible goal. We won't know when the person has landed on the moon. We won't know when the last person has been, um, you know, vaccinated when we have those tangible things like in moonshot and COVID. I think in, but the moonshot thinking that you just talk about applies so heavily here where collaboration is is absolutely essential. And, and I personally believe, you know, I started out talking about this multi-sectoral collaboration and working on something like improving mental health if there's if there's one thing that really requires multi-sectoral collaboration, that's one of them. So if you think about um, the kinds of stakeholders you need engaged from a person, a, a consumer, a person who who has challenges that they want to address to government that's funding a lot of the infrastructure that contributes to or detracts from mental well-being to big tech companies that are creating platforms that create incredible opportunities, but also create real challenges to mental well-being, um, to entrepreneurs who are doing everything from looking for biomarkers for, uh, for mental health issues to developing human uh, peer-led programs to help provide support and in combat loneliness. Um, it really feels like a place where, you know, when you talk about sort of the startup health army of investors, of entrepreneurs, of, um, of uh, subject matter experts, of scientists, we really need to bring all those things together. And one of the things that, that I've really loved about being in a place like Hope Lab, where we do have a, a lab, sort of a lab metaphor and an actual lab, is that um, every day we're bringing together those different perspectives. And every day that we're investing in new companies, we're also learning from the experience that those companies are having in the market. Where are the challenges? Um, where are they? Where where is what they're doing really engaging people? Where are they struggling with engagement? How do we better understand factors that could lead to better engagement? So I I think collaboration just feel it feels like there's there will be no success in this domain without really significant collaboration. And it's not just collaboration across sectors and funders. It's collaboration across disciplines of uh, scientists and designers working together of, um, you know, I was, I was thinking about, you know, just thinking about behavioral science and thinking about psychology and economics and sort of bringing disciplines that for a long time existed in these sort of siloed parallel planes together and having really fascinating insights as a result of that collaborative thinking. Yeah, what what do you think? You know, the two things that come up to you know, come to mind when you describe that. One is I, I think I now have a better understanding of the the, na the name lab and the help lab name as you just described how you work. But there were two things that you brought up uh, earlier: underfunded programs. And Alexandra Greenhill had written written in the comments about you know the fact that there's still an underinvestment in this area. So can it be changed? And can can either Hope Lab, the work you're doing, or the work you hope to do be a model for others to follow so that the funding is there? And I'm going to start there, and then I'm going to kind of go to a second part of that, because I think you touched on some important threads we have to unpack. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I appreciate the, the comment and the question. You know, I was having a conversation, we were doing an Omidyar group, um, an expert session, provocative, provocative session with uh, someone named Indy Johar, who runs Dark Matter Labs. And Indy was talking about a concept of, um, of infrastructure and societal infrastructure and the way that we fund, that, that government in societies fund infrastructure like roads, like water, and talking about the concept of what would it mean to fund mental health as infrastructure? What would that look like? What would that feel like? And, and it, was, it was such a fascinating thing to contemplate in a U.S. context. And so I, one of the questions I asked was, where, where do you think the closest example to this happening is? And not surprisingly, I believe it was Sweden. 
some, a Scan, it was a Scandinavian country where they're beginning to do this work. But I think that this idea of um, if we really believe that, um, that we need a fundamental infrastructure, whether it is in the schools or in other structures of society that supports um, mental health and well-being, and that, that we're going to have a better society and we're going to have better health and life outcomes for everybody if we support that, then how do we begin to think about that as infrastructure? And therefore, how do we begin to think about financing it? Mm-hmm. So the, the simple example I'll give, which is a simple example of something that's really hard, uh, you know, through my whole career, where are young people? Uh, they're in public schools. And it's one thing that we do in this country that for better, or for worse, the public schools, for better, or for worse, the public education is free and available. And that's where young people go. That's where they are. And so there's been this question for a long time of, you know, why is health care and health promotion and, and health, you know, health promoting services not more available in schools? And so one um, thing I've been spending a lot of time with over the past few weeks has been uh, talking to a company that is delivering health in the public schools and really looking at this question of how Medicaid finances health and mental health for young people. Medicaid covers 50% of young people in the country, um, including all of those that are coming from underinvested neighborhoods. And then how do those structures come together in a way that feels synergistic, in a way that would make sense. That if you were if you were sort of waving your magic wand over the U.S. economy and structure, and you knew that you the place you could find all these kids every day was in school, wouldn't it make sense to actually have these health supports and services available there? So that's an example of of a financing question that you know by no means is simple. There's silos for school, there's silos for health. They have huge structures beneath them. There's lots of reasons why they function the way they function. But if we can create these examples, these um, these prototypes and examples of how we can get these systems working together more effectively, I think and I hope we can actually move towards you know, a more thoughtful, rational um, and effective funding of health for young people. You know, the second part of that is really around, my question was really around how, let's just talk about 2021, 2022. If you were talking to uh, hospitals, health systems, or uh, larger players and organizations on the traditional side, and you were talking to a community of entrepreneurs and innovators, and you're talking to a community of investors all at the same time, like you're doing right now, what would you say, what would you love to say to them that would kind of remove either some of the self-inflicted friction that's, you know, that's there, you know, preventing them from moving forward or would help speed up and accelerate the pace of innovation? Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it is this opportunity and I'm so, so I'll take it now and I, t- I take it a lot. I think it is, there's so much brilliance in this group. I mean, every time we get a diverse group of startup health people together, so when I, this community, investors, entrepreneurs, um, health system people, government um, people, people who have deep expertise in each of these areas, every single one of those people, or at least every single one of them that would come to an event is doing this because they care about making healthcare better, right? The the thing that's amazing about the community is that the community is aligned around that. And so I think that the, the thing I would say and then do say often is, you know, how can we really bring the best thinking that each of you brings? How can we get together and, and co-create solutions that will be better for everyone? How do we create win-wins? How do we, how do we get through the difficult moments of feeling like this is a zero sum game and if you win, I lose, or I win, you lose. Um, and I, I just, I think that what I would emphasize and, and do wanna emphasize is that I, I dream about if I could just get the you know 20 best thinkers I know together to tackle this challenge, what might we come up with? And Stephen, to your earlier point, I think some of it is how do we use already existing technologies in new ways? How do we develop new things that that might meet a need that we haven't even thought of yet? But then also, how do we actually collaborate in ways that 
um, that really bring the best of what we can each bring to a challenge that's really, you know, deeply important to all of us. Most of the people in this community, if they don't have kids of their own, they have kids in their life whom they're committed mm -hmm. to seeing um, be able to thrive. And so I, what I always find fascinating is just that there, there's such a shared commitment to creating opportunities for thriving for young people. And we often trip over ourselves um, and get daunted uh, because the structures that we have in place right now are really suboptimal. And, you know, I don't know how we're going to get to the other side of it over the next 10 years, but, but I'm trying and, and I, you know, I'm on the phone and on the video every day with people who hold influential positions in, in, in organizations that can contribute to this and trying to put together, I think initially examples, this is why the entrepreneurial community is so important is that I think what entrepreneurs and early stage companies can do is show a seed of possibility and show a seed of promise. And then we can try to grow that. And that's what I'm always looking for is where are those seeds of potential or of people who are, you know, either have the tenacity and grit to take on a challenge that's been hard and to, to not take the first 10 no's for an answer. Um, and who are willing to open up the door to let people come in and contribute um, and don't and don't get quite so territorial or um, or proprietary about it. So so um, given there's a lot of people who are wondering how to inter interface or interact with Hope Lab, is it what's the best way for people to get in contact and approach you? Is it with a proposal? Is it with a program? Is it with an article from a story that was written about them in Startup Health? trying to figure out what your what what tickles your interest to get you kind of engaged with with, with filtering the signal from the noise yeah I and mean, it's a great question and i think it is um you describe you know a startup health article something about um what what the person or company is doing that a you know it needs to be a fit we're a pretty small organization with a relatively limited bandwidth so you know, there's only so many hours in a day and I, I am, you know, my, my, my greatest virtue, my greatest fault is probably my curiosity. And so, you know, I love to hear about what people are doing and, and, and meet passionate entrepreneurs. And I think, you know, the, the thing for me that really is uh, differentiating or unique um, is insight. So one of the things I do as a, as a, part-time gig is I teach in a course called Startup Garage at Stanford Business School. And it, we work with teams of students, uh, MBAs and engineers and others who are building new companies. And it can be, a company can be about anything. It could be a supersonic jet or a luggage company or a healthcare company. And one of the things that I think distinguishes the entrepreneurs um, who are kind of exciting to try to take the next step with is the insight that they have that's driving them. The, and, and again, it's something we try to do in human-centered design is really develop an insight that will be a, a, a unique, A unique a unique insight, not just an insight, a correct? Insight. It's an insight, yeah. a unique insight or a way to leverage a unique insight. And that to me is something that then I'm then then I get, then I perk up a little bit. And I and I love, I love an insight that I haven't had. I mean, what, what makes me most excited is somebody who brings an insight to me that then I can build off of. And I might be able to bring something additive, but that spark is really, really important. Looking back over the last five years, taking everything into consideration that you've learned at Hope Lab, what is the biggest lesson that you've had that you wish you knew five years ago that would have been really helpful? Um, and, you know, I guess when you add this past year to it, it had to probably uh, perhaps change your answer even given what you just described was the most difficult year in many people's lives. All right, I will offer two, um, a, sort of a learning that, that never gets old, which is um, I knew coming into Hope Lab that you know if you build it, they will come does not work. And so thinking about building in from the very beginning of any innovation or intervention or company, um, the, the, the distribution path, the marketing path. And I think what's changed so much in the past five years and what's always changing when your market is young people is the way 
young people are being influenced, consuming information, finding out about new things. Um, you know, the, the term influencer in its, the way we use it today probably didn't exist five years ago. So I think really, really being cognizant of if we want to get something to people, have them use it and have them, you know, achieve the positive life outcome or behavioral change from it, we have to deeply, deeply understand um, what are the influences that that have them select a product or service? And this is for every entrepreneur out there. What is it that's going to make that, that that's really going to make them want to, um, you know, be desperate to use your thing? And when you're trying to do something socially beneficial, it's more challenging, but but it's the same challenge. And with young people, I think it's an especially acute challenge. So that's the first one. And the second one, I think, is is really um, this generation, the generation that that we're seeing, Gen Z and Gen Alpha that we're working with, is a generation that um, you know, ten percent more voters in the twenty twenty election than the twenty sixteen election. So there's an activism and a sense of activism and action and purpose, um, purposeful action among this generation that I think really defines the way they interact with the world and with products and services. And so I think the thing that that we've learned and we've, we're really building in it after this past year is to say the way I think we can be most successful is if we can harness that energy, that activism, that purpose, the, that brilliance of this emerging generation and really provide young, young entrepreneurs with the supports and the, um, the things that they need to actually bring these, these new ideas in the digital world to life in a way that can, can support them and can really support diverse communities of young people. So the, the hunger in this generation to, um, to uh, address inequity, to be creative and to build, to kind of be builders of a new, uh, of a new sort of set of services and and uh, opportunities is really profound. And I think that's probably the biggest lesson we've taken away from this past year is not, oh no, how much more depressed young people are. That's a fact, but how incredibly ready to build and create uh, the new, the future, this, these young people are. And so to really take on as a important part of our mission to support that creativity and that, that building, um, purposeful, passionate energy. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. Startup Health invests in health transformers from around the world who are committed to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 350 companies, go to startuphealth.com. If you'd like to learn how you can invest in our Health Moonshot Rolling Fund in collaboration with AngelList, go to healthmoonshots.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. 